What's up, everybody? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. As always, I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today we're joined by Tom Z. Tom is an experienced real estate investor, but back in 2001, he was broke as a joke. He had a near-death experience while rafting that pushed him to find a new way to break free from his nine-to-five job. His first real estate deal almost took him under as well, but real estate investing saved him in the end, both personally and financially. Today, we're going to dig into negotiation strategies that real estate investors can use to do better in their real estate deals, get better deals in general, and just make more money. Tom, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to be here, Talon. It's great to have you with us. Is there anything else about your background that you'd like to add? Tell us more about how you're investing in real estate today. Well, let's see. Background-wise, when I was broke as a joke and then drowning, I I accidentally found a technique I had never heard of at the time. This is back at you know, 2001. Uh, it was wholesaling. Somebody offered the ideal that I announced at a real estate investor's meeting that I had under contract that I was planning on rehabbing. A, uh, another investor said, I, I want to buy that from you. And I, th I thought, well, I'm not done with it yet. How could you do that? He goes, no, I want to buy it from you right now. I just want to take the contract off your hands. And I wasn't even sure you could do that, much less do that legally. So uh, he said, look, it's easy. I'll walk you through the process. And I walked away with a check for almost 23 grand. It was $22,819.66. And I went, oh, wow, I'm on to something here. I can actually just do the parts of the business I like, which is marketing and negotiation. I don't, I don't really even have to get my hands dirty doing it with tenants or, or, or rehabs or anything. And that, that, that fit me like a glove, particularly at that point in my life. Wow. So I think when folks are just getting started in negotiating their first real estate deals, they tend to get really scared because you don't know where to begin. You get hung up too much on just price and you forget that there are other aspects to a negotiation. So let's talk about starting out in your first real estate deal negotiation. What are things that folks should keep in mind in that first deal? All right. Keep in mind a couple of key principles. Yes, you want the deal. Yes, you feel pressure to get the deal done, to make the magic happen, to prove that it can be done. But they have pressure on them too. The other side has pressure on them. Focus more on that because when you learn to, it, their pressure is a problem. So when you learn to solve that problem and make a solution that works for them, they'll win. And then you'll get the price you want and you win. And now you've created that that, that mystical win-win you know, scenario in the negotiation. That's really what you're after. So you, you've got to dig for people's problems and tell her, I'd go so far as, I, I always tell my students, don't be afraid to ask difficult questions. Don't be afraid to, to put some salt into their wounds. You're, you're not hurting them. You're not being rude. You're actually doing them a favor because when you push somebody to actually think about their problems and push them to solve it, you're helping them out in life. You know, if they're, if they're in, I don't know, pre-foreclosure, for example, and no one's pushing them to make a decision, eventually that foreclosure date is going to come and they're going to lose the property because nobody pushed them off the fence. Or, or maybe they've inherited the property in, in a probate from a you know a parent or a grandparent or somebody. And you know I, I've had times when you know you got five siblings and they're all arguing amongst themselves and they can't get anything done. Meanwhile, that house is sitting there decaying. They're paying taxes on an empty property. People are throwing stones through the window, and th they're creating more of a risk and a nightmare than they need to have if 
I can push them, push some salt into those wounds and get them to talk to me about selling the property. I'm doing them a favor by doing that. So, okay. You mentioned one particular scenario. Somebody's in pre-foreclosure. If nobody pushes them to make a decision, then they're going to head forward to foreclosure and that's a problem for them. So helping them make a decision is ultimately helpful for them. What are some other troubling situations that folks can look out for that could be a sign that you could maybe rub some salt in the wound, if you will, to help someone make a decision? Yep. The second example I gave was about probate. So when someone's inherited a property, a lot of times they've inherited a problem or, you know, if, if they've inherited a property on the other side of the country, they don't have time to go back there and deal with it. They got a job, they got a family, they got kids, they got a lot going on. They can't take the time off and go deal with that. So that's a perfect opportunity for you to come in as an investor and say, we'll take it off your hands exactly as is. Uh, Let me think of another scenario. Tired landlords, they're they're sick and tired of tenants (laughs) who don't pay or that they've, you know, they have to keep taking the landlord tenant court and they're still not getting paid. Or they've been frustrated by that eviction moratorium that was in place for a couple of years during the pandemic. And now as that's loosening up, people are starting to take their tenants to landlord tenant court and try to make up the back rent. It's not going to happen. And uh, you know, they're, not, they're probably not going to get made whole. So they're, they're getting tired and they want to ditch that property. So that's another excellent thing. We're kind of rub some salt in that wound, talk about it, get them irritated by the problem and then offer your solution, which is that you could take that property off their hands right now as it is, as long as you get the right price for it. Okay. So I'm glad we're moving past moving that next step. We've discovered what the problem is. We're, again, rubbing salt in the wound to better understand what the problem is, but moving forward to provide them with a solution or multiple solutions. How do you approach that problem again, where we can present a solution, but we want to present it in a way that maybe they're receptive to, or do you approach it as, hey, I'll present you three potential solutions and really only one of them's any good, but I'm going to give you a couple of throwaways. (laughs) What's your process there? Yeah. So there's a couple, couple of things in there you bring up. One, the idea of a throwaway or even a decoy offer, uh, that's used on, that's used on all of us a lot more than you realize. You know, anytime you go and you see there's, there's three different plans, there's usually one that's particularly good and one that is cheap, but not enough and one that's way too expensive. And so people go for the middle. Those are decoy offers to bring you into the middle. That's a, that's a negotiation technique. Uh, but one of the things I like to do is, is to, I might add more. I, I, I always will make more than one offer. So that's, that's one of my key negotiation principles as well. Always make at least two offers. Because if I make you one offer, Tyler, your answer to me is you can take that offer or you could tell me no. Or you can ask what else I got, which is a no. So it, that's what happens when you make one single offer. You're, you're making the person say yes or no. It becomes a binary decision. Instead, if you make two offers, now they're debating between your offers. They're thinking, oh, what's better for me, offer A or offer B? Now, there's still a third option. They could say no, but they don't tend to think about no immediately because they're debating between your two offers. So you always want to make at least two offers, two offers, you can make three offers. Well, I don't usually make offers that aren't any good. They're just different types of offers. I'll make an offer for all cash. So if they're flexible on price, take my all cash offer. But if you're flexible on terms, then I can offer you more money on a longer payout or with owner financing or, you know, subject to, depends what the scenario is, some creative financing to see if they're flexible on terms. Now, most of the time I make those two offers and they go, 
uh, I want all cash. I want to be out, but I want that higher price. So they merge the two offers together and they start moving up. But I know that in advance. <laughs> so therefore, I make those offers kind of knowing what's going to happen because that's basic human nature to do that. So in this conversation, in these examples you're giving, you have quite a few tools in your toolbox so that you can make multiple offers. You know how to make those offers and structure them in a way that makes sense and maybe leave some uh, something on the table so you can continue to negotiate with them. So building up that toolkit to be prepared for a negotiation, how do you help people approach that and help them build their toolkit so that they're walking into the conversation with potential solutions that they can present rather than just, oh, Mr. Seller has a problem, but I have no yeah. idea how to solve it. I have no idea. What good would that be if you didn't know how to solve it? So yeah, you want to dig to figure out what that problem is. I call that pinpointing. But then the next step is the package. You got to be able to build a package that works and persuade them to say yes. Yeah. So what I do is I've got 52 different negotiation techniques that I train people on. And they're modular, so it doesn't matter what order you use them in. It, it, you create a kind of an individual custom stack for every different person, every different situation. But when you start to use these, then you're putting pressure on them. You're, you're getting downward pressure on the price. At the same time, you're solving their problem. So it's not that you're pressuring them to say yes. You're, you're putting downward pressure on the price. They'll say yes when their problem is solved. So you got to keep talking to them about what that problem is. So I find that that's the best approach is to is to learn what these techniques are, but then you got to practice them. The only way to practice is to the only way to learn them is to practice them. The only way to practice them is actually make some phone calls and put yourself out there to practice. The easiest way of doing that is just pick up you know pick up the newspaper, go to Craigslist, look for some for sale by owners, and call them. They want to be called. That's why they're advertising their property. So go ahead and. Call them and practice. Don't worry about the outcome. Just get the practice. So getting that practice is big. So 52 negotiation techniques. We certainly don't have time to go through all of them yeah. right now. But out of those 52, which would you say is the one or which are the couple, if you will, that folks struggle with the most, that have they have the most difficulty with implementing? Hmm. I'm not sure. I, I break them down so that they're easy. So it's, it's it, once you understand the science behind them, then you can work on the art. So, you know, people talk about, you know, it's the art of it. I, I call it the art and the science of negotiation. The science is much more important than the art because all the techniques are based on, on science, kind of human psychology. And therefore, when you're using them, you the, the work because of the science, even if you kind of mumble your way through it or don't quite have the artistry down right. So I, I think the easiest way is to let me teach you a few of them. That way you can see how they work and, and how that makes sense. Is that cool? Mm -hmm. OK, so I'll start off with uh, the flinch. So anytime anyone says any number to me whatsoever, I act like I was attacked by that number. So, so Tyler, say a number. I want $300,000 for this property. Woo, 300000 That's a lot. Now, how do you feel about feel your number? Maybe I was too high. I mean, it's a <laughs> fictional property, but... Maybe you're too high. But now, I just said, say a number. You happened to pick a price and you tagged it on to being a price of a house, but it was just a number. You could have said seven or 10, and I would have flinched the same way. And your reaction is the same like Ooh, what's wrong with that number oh that must not be right it must be too high too low it just it's not what i was looking for and you feel that way because of the flinch so what i want everyone to do when they go and practice is to just flinch 
at every number. Now, you know, if you're, if you're watching this on video, you saw kind of facial reactions, but that's not even as important as just the sound. A lot of times you're on the phone, so just woo, kind of suck some air through your teeth and, and act, you know, you can act, uh, you know, like, wow, exacer ex exacerbated by that number. Now. Wow. All right. Great. So now they know the number's not quite right. The second technique I'm going to do is called bracketing. So I just making a theoretical example here. Let's say on this property, if I got it for 250,000 bucks at 250,000, I'd have a deal. Well, but you just said 300. Okay. So how high are you off of my target? 50K. You're 50K too high. All right. So what bracketing lets us do is meet in the middle, right? We all know we tend to meet in the middle. That's the most fair spot to be. Okay. So if it sounds fair, let's do it. So to make my target the middle, bracketing means we're engineering where the middle is. If you're if you're 50,000 high above my target price, then I want to go the same distance lower. So instead of, instead of uh, you're at 300, I'm trying to get to 250. So I'm going to start at 200. 200. Except that, ooh, wait a minute, 200. I would never offer $200,000 for that property <laughs> because of the third technique I want to teach you, which is specific numbers. I wouldn't offer 200, but I would offer 203,579. Now, how does that number sound to you? It sounds very specific. It sounds like it has some logic behind it. And we know the logic behind it is not, it's it's that you want to be around 200,000, yeah. but to the person you're negotiating with, they're going to think, wow, he did some math to come up with that. Number. Oh yeah. I'm real scientific about how I came up with that number, but yeah, exactly. But those are the thoughts in someone's head. Like, wow, this is, this is really precise. There, there must be a lot of thought put into this. This guy knows what he's doing. Um, sure. That's the way it comes across, but all my numbers, all my offers ended in 579. I love those numbers. It's just the way it is. And so if, when you make an offer, make it with specific numbers and watch what happens, it's taken that much more seriously. So between flinching at their number and then bracketing to engineer where you want the middle to be, that way you're, you're converging towards the middle and then starting your offer bracketed down, but with a specific number, those three steps alone are going to make you an exponentially better negotiator. Wow. So I've got one of the more uh, prominent books on negotiation on my shelf behind me today, Never Split the Difference, which yep. kind of runs counter to what you're saying here. What is your reaction to that? Chris Voss has never split the difference, but generally most people are going to try to split the difference. So are you still using that technique, knowing that most people are going to try to split the difference? I mean, what's your reaction to never split the difference? Well, I like, I, I haven't read the book, um, but my one, I, I love titles that tell you not to do something that is generally well known. So you know, kudos to Chris on, on, on choosing a great title, uh, but I disagree. I, splitting the difference is an excellent technique, but there's a way to do it right and a way to do it wrong. So it, the way to do it wrong is to offer to split the difference. Hey, you know, uh, we're so close. Let's meet in the middle. So let, let's say in this same negotiation, uh, I eventually get you down to 260 and you get me up to 240. So we're, we're almost there, right? We're trying to get to 250. We're 20 grand apart, but we're both 10 off the goal. I could say, well, gosh, Taller, you know, I'll split the difference with you, meet you in the middle. But when I do that, it's my suggestion. So if you agree to it, who won? You won. Yeah, I won because you're agreeing to what I want. So yeah. one of the principles, one of the techniques in negotiation is always to let the other party feel like they won. So I want you to feel like you won. I, I know I'm going to win too, but I want you to feel like you won. That's important to me. 
So I, I can't offer to split the difference and have you agree because then I won. So instead, I need to somehow convince you to offer to split the difference with me. That way I can agree to your suggestion. So I have to put words in your mouth. So how on earth does that happen? Well, it's easy. You have a conversation like, gosh, Tyler, you know, you're, you're, you're at 260. I've come all the way up to 240. Notice that you're just there, but I had this big trauma getting up to my number. It was a subtle little thing. Uh, I say, we're so close. I mean, it would be such a shame to have come this far and not be able to do business together. Isn't there anything we can do? And to which you say, well, what if you came up to 250? Maybe, maybe even say, what if you came to 255? 250, 255. Oh, you mean like kind of meet in the middle? Ooh, I might be able to do that. Uh, so I flinched, right? Because these are all layered in there. I flinched. I might be able to do that, Taylor, but I need to check with the senior people in my group. I need to check with the buying committee. I need to check with my buyers, my inspectors, my underwriters. That, that's a, that's a, a technique called higher authority. So I might be the sole decision maker, but I don't let anyone else know that. I've got to check with the group. And it's key that it's a group, not a singular person. Because if I say I need to check with Bob, well, all you're going to say is, Tom, get out of the way. Let me talk to Bob. Because if you talk to Bob directly, he's clearly the decision maker. So I would screw myself over by saying that. So I have to talk about this group, you know, the senior people, the buyers, the committee, whatever it happens to be. That way, it's a group that you can't assemble. Only I can. So you still have to work through me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. okay. We got through a bunch of different good techniques in there. Yeah, those are good. I think on the flip side of this, there are situations where even the best negotiator in the world can't come to an agreement with someone. We're just too far apart or maybe they're not serious. They don't want to make a deal or something's going on where it would make more sense to walk away from the table and move on to greener pastures, look for other sure. opportunities. How do you know when to fold them, if you will? Look, if you're not getting, if, if there's no movement, and you're not getting them down to the price that you need it to be to be a deal, then you have to, I don't want to say fold them. I would say put a reminder on your calendar in two weeks or four weeks or six weeks and see if, if enough time has passed by where they're still, where that time has changed things for them. So I don't give up necessarily. They could tell me no. Great. They're going to tell me no most of the time. To which is not, no doesn't mean no forever. It just means no for now. I've got more work to do. Okay. That makes sense. So to recap, to get negotiation practice, you're recommending that folks are, or pointing folks to say, call for sale by owner listings and yep. have a conversation with them and see if you can strike a deal or at least get practice in negotiating a real estate deal with an owner who is selling your own property. Yeah. Get practice talking to people, get practice practice getting them to open up and tell you their story, get practice, having them open up to you and talk about their problems because the more they're talking about their problems they're building rapport with you because they're they're confiding in you that that's powerful and then as they're doing that you can start to put together a package that would work to solve that problem and if that means selling the property to solve the problem that's exactly what you're after so a big part of this is being an active listener paying attention to what they're saying body language everything along those lines and active listening is difficult i think i'm certainly someone that's a skill or practice that I've had to develop. How do you recommend folks work on their active listening skills? Yeah, I was going to crack a joke and say, of course, it's hard for us. We're men. 
<laughs> you know, but you know, that, that's it is, but you, you have to, I view it as it's the key to getting it, to getting the deal done. If it's going to be potentially be a deal, I've got to keep asking questions and treat it like peeling off layers of an onion. Every time I ask another question, I get a little bit deeper. And then I'll ask a follow-up question like, well, that's interesting. Tell me more. Oh, you inherited the property from your grandmother who passed away a year ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, that that's interesting. Tell me more. Oh, you know, are you dealing with, uh, oh, but you know, your, your siblings aren't sure what to do. You've been having arguments. Oh, that's interesting. Has it always been that way with the siblings? Um, I get it. I hear that a lot. Tell me more. And you keep kind of peeling that off until you really get, you'll know when you're at the real meat of the conversation. And that's, and that's when you can start to structure a package that would work. So you ask, what would solve your problem? What, what are you trying to get out of this? What would need to happen to make this deal work for you? Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Did you know that you can use your IRA to invest in real estate? Many real estate investors, myself included, use our self-directed retirement accounts to invest our retirement in real estate. You just need a custodian that allows you to self-direct your investments. That's why we've partnered with Rocket Dollar. Rocket Dollar is a technology-enabled self-directed IRA and solo 401k provider that puts your retirement funds in your control. Our listeners can open a Rocket Dollar self-directed IRA for as little as $15 per month, plus a one-time setup fee. Just go to PassiveWealthStrategy.com slash Rocket or click the link in the show notes. They have a fantastic knowledge base and a lot of guides to help you through the process and teach you all about how self-directed retirement account investing works. Once again, just go to PassiveWealthStrategy.com slash Rocket or click the link in the show notes. All right, Tom, I've got three questions I ask every guest in the show. Are you ready? Go for it. Number one, what is your number one book recommendation? Number one book recommendation. Well, this one's a little old school. Uh, it, it, there's an author named Robert Ringer, R-I-N-G-E-R. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, To Be or Not to Be Intimidated. It's awesome. It's totally different uh, angle on things. It's kind of about mindset and frame and surviving in the business jungle. Like recognizing that you're in a jungle, there's other people out there to get you, there's predators out there to get you. You gotta hold your own and hold your frame. I, I find it I find it to be a particularly excellent book. Uh, it was written long enough ago that he probably wouldn't have used the term red pill. Uh, that seems to be more of a <laughs> more recent uh, term, yes. but I see it as an early thing about like just kind of taking the red pill and recognizing the reality of the situation for what it is, uh, and then learning learning how to survive in the business jungle. Excellent book. Love it. Question number two, who or what inspires you? Doing things for my family, like being able to have my time with my kids and my wife and, and, and travel, that always in, inspires me as a what is kind of the reason why I'm doing things. It's, it's lifestyle driven. I know lifestyle, lifestyle the word is almost a cliche these days, but, but it, it's, I'll tell you, it's, I, haven't had, I haven't had a job in what, 22 years or so? Uh, and I love being unemployed like that and unemployable. It, it's cool. It's, 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 I'd much rather be an entrepreneur on my own. And I like that. So that's what inspires me. Who specifically? Uh, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill has always massively inspired me. The number of, of things he had to deal with coming at him all at the same time and the 
both the kind of clinical way, the technical way, the, 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 even the, the way he kept humor through doing all that, even during very difficult, very difficult times. I always turn to that uh, for inspiration and think about because you, you deal with a lot of different things as an entrepreneur. You put on a lot of different hats and uh, so did Winston Churchill. So there's some, some excellent, uh, I always find him very inspiring. Nice. Number three, think about Tom at 80 years old. What advice would he give to Tom of today? What does 80-year-old Tom give to younger Tom? Um, get started sooner. Filter out the noise. Like, tune everybody else out. Only listen to people that have... I, I, this is almost cliche as well. I'm sure people have heard it before. Only listen to people who have actually done what you want to do instead of everybody else. Because I'll tell you, there, are, there were a lot of negative naysayer-type people out there when I got started. Uh Many of them, look, it's friends and family a lot of times, and they, they, and I suppose they're afraid for you out of love, and they say, okay, that's fine. On the other hand, now I look back and some of that, you know, oh, I think you're crazy, and why are you doing this for? Why are you putting yourself into difficult financial times, and how is that ever going to work out? That's way too risky. And yet, you know, years later, now they're going, oh, well, it must be nice to travel all the time. <laughs> it must be nice to not have to work. That well, it is, but, you know, I... That was my goal. I set that up for myself. It, it wasn't, it, it didn't happen without some forethought. Absolutely. Well, Tom, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this knowledge. If folks want to reach out or learn more about what you're up to, where can they track you down? One of the best ways is go to my podcast website. The podcast is called The Art and Science of Real Estate Negotiation. You can find it at tomzeeb.com, T O M Z is in zebra, E E B is in boy. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.